Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Crimopedia. I'm your host, Allison, and today I have a case for you that I actually found out about on TikTok. Rose Blake, a young girl from California, United States, ended up on my For You page because she is the daughter of Robert Blake, who was tried for killing his wife, Rose's mother, Bonnie Bakley, in the early 2000s. Rose was just a baby when this happened, but she decided to break her silence and discuss the whole ordeal in interviews and online about how much it has affected her in countless ways. So today, I'm going to take you down to the city of Lost Angels, where we'll dive deep into what really happened to Bonnie Bakley. Robert Blake was born on September 18th of 1933, and he was actually born as Michael James Gubitosi, but for this episode, I'm just going to refer to him as Robert Blake, although throughout his career as an actor, he was donned a few nicknames. Robert was born in Nutley, New Jersey to James Gubitosi and Elizabeth Caffone. His father worked as a dye setter for a can manufacturer, but eventually his family decided they needed a change of tune, and eventually his parents began a song and dance act with the whole family called the Three Little Hillbillies. In 1938, the family left Jersey and headed to Los Angeles, California, where Robert and his siblings all began acting as extras, although Robert was notably having the most success. He was featured on the show The Little Rascals under his own name, which was Michael, and then he also landed a role in the movie Bridal Suite. He began going by the nickname Mickey and then started going by Bobby Blake, which is the name that film credits began giving him starting in 1942. By this time, Robert was already stacking up the accolades and eventually would be awarded the Child Star Lifetime Achievement Award from the Young Artist Foundation. Robert landed multiple roles with Warner Brothers Studios and the studios of Republic Pictures, now known as CBS Radford. By all accounts, Robert was carving out for himself an incredibly successful career from a very young age, one that Michael Newton would come out and say is one of the longest in history. But there was a side to Robert Blake that not everybody knew about at that time. He was allegedly suffering abuse at home at the hands of his alcoholic father, which caused him to flee home at only 14 years old, and eventually he would enlist in the U.S. Army at 17 years old in the year 1950. Robert left the service at the age of 21 and found himself in a bit of a situation, one that is sadly all too common even today for North American veterans. What was he going to do now? Robert found himself without a job and fell into a pit of depression and substance abuse for two whole years. But thankfully, this didn't last for any longer than that, and an acting class actually rejuvenated his love for film, and in 1956, he was back in action on his way to reviving his once household name. After another decade of success, Robert Blake got his big break in the movie In Cold Blood, where he played a man by the name of Perry Smith. Perry Smith is a real person, someone who was convicted of murdering four members of the Clutter family in the city of Holcomb, Kansas on November 15th of 1959. 
Perry was a career criminal born of mixed ancestry. Some people speculate he was of some sort of European descent and indigenous American descent, but either way, his complexion bore a striking resemblance to Robert Blake. So the role was a perfect fit and Robert did really well. The film itself actually received two Oscar nominations, but this was only the beginning for Robert Blake. He would later star in Beretta, a show about Tony Beretta, a fictional, streetwise, plain-clothed police detective for which he won an Emmy. I think his success speaks for itself, honestly. Aside from Robert's acting success, he was also a person too and ended up getting married to a woman named Sandra Kerr and they enjoyed married life together for just over two decades before they eventually divorced in 1983. An actress herself, Sandra was born on August 17th of 1936 in Los Angeles, California. Her most notable film feature, at least for me, being only 22 years old and not around at the height of her career, was her recent role in Grown Ups in 2017 where she plays Rebecca. Her relationship with Blake was said to be contentious to say the least, with some allegations of even abuse and infidelity. Despite them having two children together, it seemed that their divorce was for the best. However, just over a decade later, Robert would meet a woman who shook his world up quite unlike anybody had before. If anyone had thought that his marriage with Sandra Kerr was toxic, they really had no idea what was coming next. In 1999, Robert met Bonnie Lee Bakley, who happened to also be from New Jersey. Bonnie was born on June 7th of 1956, making her only 43 years old when she met Robert. She had grown up with three siblings, but they were all raised by her grandmother. Bonnie had dropped out of high school at 16 years old and decided to travel to New York City in hopes of pursuing a career in modeling and acting at the Barbizon School of Modeling. It was there that Bonnie would meet her first husband, Evangelos Palakis, who fully admitted to Bonnie that he needed to get married to an American woman in order to stay in the country. Bonnie, being young and a little bit wild, agreed to marry him with the stipulation of a payout afterwards in her favor. After the marriage was finalized and the money was paid, Bonnie immediately annulled the marriage and Evangelos was deported. Bonnie at the time of her death would have actually married 10 different times, her longest being a five-year-long marriage with her first cousin that ended in 1982. Bonnie was very hot and cold in her relationships and was always chasing a new thrill. A big part of this was that she had a knack for celebrity obsessions. Bonnie loved Hollywood and the glamour, and it was said by people who knew her that Bonnie was bound and determined to marry somebody famous one day. And she made this no secret. She actually began pursuing the singer Jerry Lee Lewis and actually managed to get close to his sister, Linda. In 1993, Bonnie attempted to coerce Jerry Lee Lewis into a relationship with her by claiming that a child she had birthed belonged to him, but a paternity test was able to disprove that. Without going too far into the details of this particular situation, I'm just trying to point out that this would not be the last time that Bonnie would attempt to use a pregnancy in order to solidify her spot in a man's life. Backtracking a little bit, in 1991, she became infatuated with Christian Brando, the son of Academy Award-winning actor Marlon Brando. 
Christian was actually arrested and charges were brought against him for voluntary manslaughter of his half-sister's boyfriend and this was, for obvious reasons, the top story at the time and resulted in him being sentenced to a decade behind bars. While in jail, Bonnie actually began writing to Christian and sending him photos of herself and after a series of correspondence, they were actually planning to engage in a romantic relationship, which is exactly what they did when Christian was released early in 1996. Bonnie was especially clever at being able to insert herself into the lives of people she was interested in. In fact, Bonnie was exceptionally good at enticing people who didn't even know her at all. Think about it, she became infatuated with Christian Brando, then she was in a relationship with Christian Brando. She was infatuated with Jerry Lee Lewis, suddenly she's in a position to start claiming that she has a child of his. Bonnie was really smart and knew how to use the skills that she had to get what she wanted. For a very long time, one of her main methods of income, if not her only method, was a mail order scam involving alluring men in exchange for money in a sort of lonely hearts club fashion. A few years later, after Bonnie had already met Robert Blake in 1999, she had birthed another child. This time, it was a daughter, and she thought this child to be Christian Brando's, so she even went as far as to name this child Christian. But Robert Blake was also sleeping with her at this time and was skeptical, and so he ordered a paternity test, which again disproved who she thought the father of her child to be. Christian was not the father of this baby, it was Robert Blake. Shortly after this revelation, this child's name was actually changed from Christian to Rose Blake. And yes, this is the same Rose that I discussed at the beginning of this episode. It was clear to Robert that Bonnie was a bit untamed, so to speak. She made her livelihood scamming men and took great pride in herself for successfully achieving relationships with famous people that she sought out. Her fast lifestyle became a big issue for Robert because now they had a child together, which warranted discussions about legalities and custody, and Bonnie used that to her advantage. Bonnie insisted on marrying Robert. After all, it was one of her lifelong dreams to marry somebody famous, and so he agreed to marry her with the condition that she signed temporary custody over to him of Rose and with Bonnie being only granted monitor visits. As well, Bonnie's friends and family could not come see the child on the property without written consent. Additionally, this contract also stated that if either spouse were to terminate the marriage, that the other would get sole custody of Rose Blake. I wasn't entirely sure what to make of this aspect of the agreement at the time of signing, but either way, Bonnie and Robert Blake were married in November of 2000, only a month after agreeing to these terms. After their marriage, the couple did not live together. Instead, with Robert's success in acting, he was able to purchase quite a large home in Studio City, California that came with a guest house where Bonnie would stay. As I'm sure you can imagine, and as is substantiated by the acquaintances of both Robert and Bonnie, their marriage was essentially loveless and definitely troubled. They both had deep trust issues with each other, Bonnie being infatuated with many different men at once, and Robert now having to navigate life with a woman he hardly knew by his side. 
At one point, Robert actually hired a private investigator to dig up more information about Bonnie, considering he had just met her and slept with her and now he's fathered a child with her and somehow now they're married, all happening in less than two years. This private investigator discovered that Bonnie had continued to run her Lonely Hearts scam throughout her marriage to Robert, as well as was continuing her celebrity obsessions and was actually plotting her next relationship and Robert detested her for this. After her death, two boxes full of love letters and cash from men that Bonnie was scamming were found in her possession, as well as an address book full of names and numbers of celebrity men along with their yearly incomes and a log of how many times she had been successfully able to interact with them. Bonnie's obsession ran quite deep clearly and Robert was often known to speak quite poorly of Bonnie because of this but due to the conditions of their marital arrangement, it would be impossible to divorce without getting extremely messy. At the very least, despite their tumultuous relationship, in public, Robert and Bonnie had to keep things civil. Mind you, he was a public figure and had a rapport to maintain with the media. On May 4th of 2001, the couple went to dinner at a restaurant called Vitello's on Tijunga Avenue in Studio City, California. After they enjoyed their meal in a semi-private booth near the front entrance, Robert's favorite spot in the house, Robert paid the bill at 9.23pm and shortly before 9.30, they headed out to walk to their dark-colored Dodge Stealth, which was parked on a side street around the corner from the restaurant. The couple had almost reached the car when Robert told Bonnie that he had accidentally left his 38 Smith & Wesson pistol at the restaurant and he needed to go retrieve it and so that's what he did. Bonnie, on the other hand, went alone to go sit in the car and wait for him. During the approximate 10 minute window of time where Bonnie was sitting alone in the passenger seat, Bonnie Bakley was shot twice, once in the right cheek and once in the right shoulder. When Robert came back to his car and saw what had happened, he was hysterical and ran up to a nearby neighbor's home begging for help where he called 911 at 9.40 p.m. Sadly, however, Bonnie passed away that night at the hospital only just half a year into her marriage with Robert Blake. The Los Angeles Police Department, still recovering from the O.J. Simpson acquittal in 1995, decided to assign 17 top detectives to the murder of Bonnie Bakley. Officers noticed right away at the scene that the passenger side window was rolled down, which Bonnie must have done from inside the car, that's where she was sitting, which indicated to police that she may have known her killer and went to roll down the window to have a conversation with them as they approached. As well, police noted that Robert's behavior was seeming a bit disingenuous. He was panicking as expected, and really it is hard to judge somebody during the heat of such a dramatic situation. However, while Robert was sweating and dry heaving and wiping his hands all over his shirt and face, some people couldn't help but wonder if he was putting on the theatrics because it certainly did seem that way to some. This point would become important when Robert was swabbed for gunshot residue and the results of that came back negative, but some people viewed those results as potentially contaminated due to Robert's excessive wiping of his hands all over his shirt and face while in distress. 
Some people speculate that this was a tactic, others say it's hard to tell. If you're thinking to yourself, well, he went back into Vitello's to grab his own gun that he had left in the restaurant, so it makes sense as to why he had no residue on his hands because he could not have been present to shoot her, right? Then you'd be partially correct in your train of thought. Interestingly, nobody actually saw Robert head back into the restaurant and retrieve his gun, and nobody saw what had happened to Bonnie. And so although he was able to produce said gun to the police that he allegedly went to retrieve when he left her alone in the car, technically his alibi is merely hearsay. One thing that is clear is that the gun that Robert owned and claimed to have left behind was not the weapon that killed Bonnie Bakley. Instead, investigators were able to locate the murder weapon abandoned in a trash bin down the street from the scene. The gun was a standard-issue Nazi-era pistol with the serial number filed off, indicating to police that this weapon's only intended purpose was to commit this crime. However, a large lack of evidence otherwise did put this case to a standstill for some time, at least in the eyes of the public. That was until on April 18th of 2002, almost a year after the murder of Bonnie Bakley, police arrested Robert Blake in his home under suspicion of murder. As well, they also placed Earl Caldwell, Blake's former bodyguard, into custody under suspicion of conspiracy to commit murder. I know I didn't provide a whole lot of context yet, but these arrests didn't quite come as a shock to the public when they happened. Up until this point, Bonnie's family insisted that Robert was involved somehow and told the media about allegations of abuse in their relationship, which did seem to line up with stories that Bonnie had told other people before her passing. As well, if you'll remember, very similar allegations held true when Robert Blake was married to Sandra Kerr. According to the Los Angeles Police Department, the nail in the coffin for Robert Blake happened when a retired stuntman, Ronald Hambleton, who met Blake on the set of Beretta, agreed to testify against Blake in court, alleging that Robert had tried to hire him to kill Bonnie before. To make it even worse, another retired stuntman, Gary McClarty, also came forward with a similar story as the one put forth by Hambleton. Both men were alleging that Robert was actively seeking murder for hire against his wife at the time of her death, and the prosecution decided that the circumstances were enough to move forward in the investigation of this theory. Officers searched the home of Robert Blake, which was largely under construction, as well as where Bonnie was staying. At the time, the police were pretty stingy with their findings, with Lieutenant Horace Frank only willing to comment on the fact that they executed the search to seek, quote, specific items. My guess is, whatever they were referring to had something to do with another search that was conducted of Earl Caldwell's possessions. In Caldwell's car, the police found a list of items such as 25 auto, pool acid, duct tape, Drano, which made police highly skeptical at first as to why he had such a specific list of items that kinda looked like a murder kit, if you're asking me. Blake would later tell police and the court that these items were necessary because both Caldwell and Robert were doing odd jobs around Robert's home, hence why it was under construction. And the 25 auto note was to remind him to get his oil changed at 25,000 miles. Seems harmless, right? But the police weren't buying it. 
This odd list of items, as well as Robert's reported disingenuous behavior at the time of the murder, his shaky alibi, the testimony from the two stuntmen, the fact that Bonnie's window was open, likely because she recognized the person who was going to kill her, it was all coming together for police. And the motive made all the sense in the world. Robert was stuck in a loveless marriage with a woman that he despised and often called names and was legally bound into a contract with her regarding the custody of their infant child. To police, it all made sense. Robert wanted out, but he didn't want any blood on his hands, so he hired someone to do it. Someone that he knew, someone that Bonnie knew, potentially Earl Caldwell. At the very least, they thought Earl was conspiring alongside Robert. Looking at all of this together, police decided it was enough to move forward with the arrests of both Caldwell and Robert Blake for murder and conspiracy. On April 22nd, Robert was charged with murder with special circumstances, meaning that the actions of the accused allow for a more severe punishment in California law. Special circumstances are elements of the crime itself that must be proven during the guilt phase of the trial and are distinct from aggravating or mitigating circumstances. My guess would be that these special circumstances relate to the solicitation of the murder, but either way, this charge carried the possibility of the death penalty. But Robert Blake was confident in his innocence. Or at the very least, I guess you can say he was confident in his ability to cast reasonable doubt on the prosecution's evidence against him. And with that, Robert pleaded not guilty. He ended up hiring attorneys Jennifer Kelly and Harland Braun, Braun especially who was quick to discount the rumors put forth by the media about Robert's guilt. He casted Bonnie out in a particularly unflattering light. He described her as an evil person with countless enemies, which was likely a tribute to the many encounters she had with men she was scamming and celebrities whose lives she was constantly trying to infiltrate. He attributed what he called Bakley's shady past and affinity for relationship drama to her demise. Bonnie's lifestyle became a huge point of interest for the defense because she was operating such a large scam that many people knew about for so long, as well as purposefully inserting herself into the lives of public figures. And frankly, while she was doing these things, she was upsetting a lot of people. She was running a dangerous game and she even knew that. She told people that she was involved with several violent encounters with men who she was teasing and conning out of money. And the defense used all of this information to cast reasonable doubt as to whether or not Robert was the one who orchestrated her murder or possibly somebody else who was getting frustrated at Bonnie after being scammed. In the defense's narrative in favor of Robert Blake was that one of these scorned men got the revenge on Bonnie and that it couldn't have possibly been her husband. However, at some point, both of those attorneys hired by Robert Blake filed to recuse themselves from the case because Robert simply would not stop self-sabotaging in the media, despite their advising to steer clear of interviews. They were replaced with attorney Thomas Mesereau Jr., who was quick to familiarize himself with the details of the case, and during the preliminary hearing, he pointed out that there was no evidence to tie Robert Blake to the murder physically, and essentially the prosecution's case was all circumstantial, depending mostly on the testimony from those two stuntmen whose credibility would certainly come up later. 
Prosecutor Pat Dixon's argument during this hearing was that Robert Blake had been talking about hiring someone to get rid of Bonnie for some time, and that he told people exactly what he was going to do until one day it finally happened. Deputy District Attorney Greg Dohai said after the hearing that, yeah, the witness testimony was key, but after two full weeks of preliminary testimony, Justice Lloyd Nash ruled that Robert Blake had both the motive and opportunity to carry out the crimes he was being accused of, and so a trial would proceed. After this ruling, on March 13th, Robert was granted $1.5 million bail, which was paid out, and he was allowed to await trial at his home under house arrest. Earl Caldwell was also granted bail, which was paid out by Robert. Which I think is kind of nice. If somebody has you wrapped up in a conspiracy to commit murder case and has the funds to be able to bail you out of jail, it kind of just seems like the right thing to do. In an interesting move, Justice Darlene Shemp reversed and dismissed the conspiracy charges against Robert and Caldwell on October 31st of 2003 because she thought them to be speculative and unfounded, which is what exactly was being echoed by the defense as well. So at this point, although kind of unclear from my research, I'm pretty sure Earl Caldwell was absolved from all culpability in criminal court and he got to walk out of that courtroom never to be bothered again about this case in a criminal court of law. But that doesn't mean all was going well on the side of the defense. Thomas Mesereau Jr., like the previous two attorneys hired by Robert Blake, also filed to recuse himself from the case after a dispute with Robert in February of 2004. He was shortly replaced by Gerald Schwartzbach, who would oversee the case throughout the trial, but I can't promise there's not going to be any more names I'm going to throw at you to remember in this story. The trial actually began in January of 2005, and it began with opening statements from prosecutor Shelley Samuels, who was continuing to spin the narrative that Robert solicited murder for hire to free himself from a loveless marriage and a lose-lose custody agreement. The prosecution argued that leaving Bonnie alone in the car was all a part of the setup. After all, if Bonnie and Robert had already practically reached their vehicle, and it's not like he forgot his keys in the restaurant, then why not just simply drive up to the entrance? As well, despite there being conflicting reports on whether or not Robert actually went and retrieved his gun from Vitello's after leaving Bonnie in the car, what we do know is that nobody saw him. There were no witnesses at all who had seen him do this. None of the waitstaff or other people in the area saw literally anything happen. And so the prosecution's argument was that the ball was completely in Robert's court however he wanted to spin the story. As well, the prosecution called up divorce lawyer Carrie Goldstein to stand as a witness who was actually holding the copy of that marriage contract that both Robert and Bonnie signed in October of 2000 to discuss the conditions of this agreement in court. This was done in an attempt to solidify Robert's motive, to prove that he felt trapped, and Goldstein was able to do this by stating that in his 25-year-long law career, he has never seen an agreement so abusive. To make it even worse, he said that when he actually refused to back Bonnie in this agreement, she simply sought out another lawyer who would. Bonnie at that time was more than eager to marry Robert Blake. Again, it had been a lifelong goal for her to marry somebody famous, according to everybody who knew her the best. 
But Goldstein testified that her eagerness didn't mean that Bonnie felt safe in the relationship because she didn't, alleging that Bonnie once told him that if anything ever happened to her, it was at the hands of her husband. To seal the deal, the prosecution then brought up both retired stuntmen mentioned before, McClarty and Hamilton, and they both testified, as promised, that Robert Blake had approached them and others trying to hire somebody to kill Bonnie. However, the defense was able to cast doubt on the credibility of these two witnesses by bringing up both of their histories of substance abuse, mental health issues, and Hamilton's criminal history. The defense was also able to cast doubt as to whether any of the wait staff would have even seen Robert come back for the gun that he allegedly left at the booth at all by showing photographs in court of his pathway into the restaurant and how it's possible that he could have been obscured from view at all angles. As to why Blake didn't just drive back up to Vitello's after realizing his gun was missing, the defense argued that as he aged, Blake liked to walk more. The defense also presented a crime scene reconstruction that demonstrated the way the killer could have potentially stood by the car to shoot Bonnie based on the trajectory of the casings and pointed out that this killer clearly must have been right-handed if this is how it happened. Conveniently, Robert Blake was left-handed. After the defense was able to successfully chalk up the conspiracy to solicit angle to almost nothing by discrediting the key witnesses, the defense moved on to discussing the lack of gunshot residue on Robert's hands at the time of the murder. Now that they've proven that he likely didn't hire someone to do it, they just needed to make sure that the jury knew that he also was not the one who pulled the trigger. Despite the lack of gunshot residue, if you'll recall, some people still did speculate that he was attempting to wipe residue all over his shirt and face, as you'll recall from how I described the initial crime scene. There's actually a few photographs of Robert doing this online that you can look up for yourself, but I will link some of that stuff in the show notes for you. The defense was able to wrap up by agreeing with the prosecution in, yeah, undeniably, Robert and Bonnie were not in love and their marriage was not healthy or productive, but being unhappy in a marriage, albeit with many legally binding conditions, does not make somebody a killer. Some may argue that the circumstances are enough to prove a motive, but even then, the only evidence to substantiate that comes from two pretty shaky witnesses and the prosecution could not tie Robert Blake or even anybody to the murder weapon found in the dumpster. After closing arguments were presented and deliberations began, jury foreman Thomas Nicholson echoed this exact same sentiment by saying that the circumstantial evidence presented by the prosecution left huge gaps full of reasonable doubt. And his next comment really speaks to the efficacy of the defense because Thomas Nicholson even called one of the stuntmen a prolific liar after his credibility was so severely damaged. Lastly, Nicholson pointed out that the prosecution couldn't even put the murder weapon anywhere near Blake. Like I mentioned before, the murder weapon was found in the opposite direction of Robert and Bonnie's car, quite a ways away actually from them and from the restaurant. And with that, on March 16th of 2005, after two months of proceedings, Robert Blake was found not guilty on all charges, except for one, the solicitation to commit murder. But this charge was dropped anyways after an 11 to 1 jury deadlock in favor of an acquittal. The public was 
buzzing about this. The media ran wild with this story because many people for the year leading up to the arrest were certain that Robert Blake at the very least knew who had killed his wife. Los Angeles District Attorney Stephen Cooley was actually so disturbed by this verdict that he even made public comments saying that Blake was a miserable human being and even called the jurors outright stupid, which he obviously received some serious backlash for. But after the verdict was read, Robert Blake was able to exit the courtroom a free man and decided to celebrate the end of a long, expensive legal ordeal with his closest associates at none other than his favorite place, Vitello's. Robert's children were not at all impressed by this verdict, and actually, they were very quick to file a civil suit against him for the wrongful death of Bonnie Bakley. The novel Celebrities and Crime by Michael Newton and John L. French talks about this case in depth and speaks to this matter in relation to double jeopardy. In the United States Constitution, it states that no person may be put twice in jeopardy of life or limb for the same offense. Basically, once somebody is formally acquitted on charges for a crime, that's it. The opportunity to serve justice has come and gone, which is possibly why the initiation of the trial took so long after Robert posted bail, because the prosecution wanted to gather as much evidence as possible, although they admittedly didn't have very much. But there are loopholes to double jeopardy. Robert was acquitted in criminal court of the murder of Bonnie Bakley, but his children were now filing suit in civil court, which is entirely different, and so the case proceeded. This series of events is shockingly quite similar to what happened in the case of O.J. Simpson. In 2002, a civil jury found him liable for the wrongful deaths of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman, although he was formally acquitted in criminal court, just like Robert Blake, represented by none other than Robert Kardashian Sr. The outcome of that civil suit was that OJ was required to pay $33 million in restitution at that time, and the outcome for Robert Blake would bear a striking resemblance. And in this civil suit is really where things start to take a huge downward spiral for Robert. After shocking testimony from the girlfriend of Earl Caldwell, where she testified that, in fact, she does think that both Caldwell, her own boyfriend, and Blake were involved, on November 18th of 2005, a civil jury found Robert liable in the wrongful death of his late wife, and he was ordered to pay 30 million restitution which, I have to note, he was never able to do. In fact, on February 3rd of 2006, Robert Blake actually filed for bankruptcy. Just like Earl Caldwell's girlfriend, defense attorney Gerald Schwartzbach, who represented Robert Blake throughout his criminal trial after the other attorneys jumped ship, he decided to appeal the jury's verdict in that criminal case after deciding for himself that Robert was in fact guilty. And he did this on February 28th of 2007. A few years later, yet another person would come out switching sides on Robert. In a 2020 interview in 2016, Scott Ross, a private investigator, said that he also believes that Blake was involved in the death of Bonnie Bakley, although he states that he does not believe Blake pulled the trigger himself. But despite the few accredited people switching sides, the courts decided to uphold the not guilty verdict in the case of Robert Blake, and actually the civil courts knocked back his restitution payout 
to half of its original value. He was now only made to pay 15 million. I'm not sure if Robert has even really been able to pay anything in terms of what he owes because he was found liable in the wrongful death of Bonnie Bakley, but what I do know is that nowadays he still insists that he's broke and he's even been seen by tabloids traveling to auditions, usually with a new lady around his arm almost every time. I'd really like to know what you guys think about this one, but personally, I think this case teaches a valuable lesson about how today's society values women and how women in our society have always upheld men on a pedestal, to the point where marrying a celebrity man was the pinnacle of Bonnie Bakley's achievements. Bonnie's death was blamed by the defense on her lifestyle choices, albeit she was running a scam, but the scam wasn't even the biggest part that people focused on. People were constantly slut-shaming Bonnie for her choices, her marriages, her zealous sex life, and everything in between. And because of this, the defense was somehow able to successfully cast reasonable doubt as to whether or not somebody who was extremely close to her murdered her, as opposed to somebody who she had just teased the wrong way. And it's a harmful narrative to spin. It implies that sexually frustrated men are significantly more dangerous than a husband who hates his wife, and everybody around him has said that he was abusive to Bonnie. I think everybody listening to this podcast knows what the statistics are. A woman is more likely to be killed by her husband or an intimate partner than anybody else. And if you look at Blake's track record of relationships, I don't think it would be that hard to imagine how this one turned out sour as well. Because of the way that this narrative was spun, the result of this case, according to many people, is that the person responsible for Bonnie's death effectively got away with it, but I'll let you guys be the judge of that. Thanks for listening to another episode of Crimopedia. Be sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at CrimopediaPod, but check out my website if you have a case suggestion, you want to get in contact with me, or you want to read a little bit more information about each case that I cover since I have all my sources there. Thanks again for listening, everybody. I really appreciate all the support I've been getting on the podcast. It means the whole world. And I hope everybody is enjoying these episodes half as much that I enjoy making them. Take care, everybody, and I'll talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.